we live with co-presence. The co-presence of spirits is one of them. And now we have to acknowledge that our co-presence at the moment in the time of wafting away spirits is the machine. What one makes operative, right, even in the machine, is, is going to change everything. If I make Shiva operative as a certain kind of father figure godhead who is parental, paternal, it's going to be very different from uh, another kind of Shiva godhead. How one looks at what the machine can do or what it is doing is our core presence. And our, our infrastructural relationship with that will change what it will continue to do or what it will do in the future. This is AI Murmurings, a podcast that explores intersections of contemporary art and artificial intelligence. I'm Carolyn Strauss, Director of Slow Research Lab, a creative research and curatorial platform based in the Netherlands. This podcast was produced in partnership with the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and Sia Furler Institute, both at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. It's part of a first-of-its-kind artistic research program called Art Intelligence. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Monica Narula of Rux Media Collective an artistic and curatorial collective based in Delhi, where she joins me from today. Among many other achievements, Rux are the artistic directors of this year's 11th Yokohama Triennial, which has just drawn to a close in Yokohama, Japan. Monica, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure. Delighted to be here, Caroline. So you are an artist, as are your Rux co-conspirators, Shudasan Gupta and Jibesh Bagchi, and you also work as a curatorial team, or maybe I should say curatorial force. I understand the three of you met in film school many moons ago. Many, many, many uh, moons ago. I think it's been more than 25 years. We met as students, so fairly young, and I think being in film school was really not only a film school, we, also, we did a number of other things in there, including street theater and media theory and, and you know, all of that. But it was really sort of, I guess it is a very impressionable time. So some of the politics of what makes a film, the idea of collective participation, and I remember we did, even did a movement in our school that there would be equal credit for everyone, no matter what role they played or essayed in the final film. These were formative experiences where we tested the ground of what it meant to work both together as the three of us, although it was not formally together yet, as well as sort of asking ourselves and the other members of our community at that time what constituted making things together and how this thing could be talked in the public sphere as opposed to the same usual hierarchical systems of name giving. So it's an interesting memory. I haven't thought about that for a while. You've gone on to not only work as artists, but you've curated exhibitions, you've edited books, you've staged events, collaborating not only with other artists, but with architects, with writers, with theater directors, computer programmers, 
Is there anyone you haven't yet collaborated with or that you <laughs> that you'd like to? Actually, um, a recent very fascinating event last year was a trip to CERN, where we went and spent four days at the CERN laboratories, and we were able to walk in the collider because it was switched off. And we had conversations with physicists, both theoretical and experimental, about questions of space, of course, but crucially questions of time, although can one separate them? And we have discussed amongst ourselves how to take this forward, and we hope to do that. That is a really exciting horizon. Yeah. It was an extraordinary experience to feel so close to the biggest questions yeah, in the universe, right. really. To that scale of inquiry, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this question of how one uh, how one connects to something so profoundly, you know, conceptually and affectively so profoundly large, and still makes sense of the everyday, and how does one connect them in which there is no diminishment of the present moment that one lives through? This is, I think, one of the big sort of thought challenges that we were encountering: the awe and wonder of, you know being in the colliders of one order, but then what do you take from that? And what do you bring to your everyday that is not just a question of, oh, I went and did a cool thing. So that's where we are at at this moment. I feel like it's very much connected, as you said, to questions of time, which are so pervasive in your work. I think that you've referred to your practice as this restless and energetic entanglement, not only the world, with the world, but also with time. It says on your website, Rux articulates an intimately lived relationship with time in all its tenses. And I know that in the context of Yokohama, you use terms like presence and becoming. I heard Jibish talking about the has been, not yet. Uh, and you've talked about these dilations of time and these in and intensities of time. And because it really pervades all of your practice, right? Which is why it's all the harder to talk about it. Yeah. I think it's a kind of lived attitude, if you will. I mean, I remember that the, one of the earliest films we made as a collective, uh, I think it was in 1995, was called Present Imperfect Future Tense. Um, at that time, we were riffing off, uh, of course, a very sort of word pun, which we still love doing, thinking with words, language as material. Um, but I think that... The fact that we chose the term rocks itself, I think, is uh, without necessarily being as aware of it as I'm speaking today. But rocks is an interesting term because it is that state that whirling dervishes attain when they are whirling in ecstasy. So it is a kind of mystic moment. It is a spiritual moment, but yet it is done from movement, from being uh, wholly connected. And when they whirl, they have one hand raised to the sky and one hand facing the ground. So it is about sort of being present, but connecting yourself both to above and below. And what is beautiful to watch when you watch the dervishes whirl, for example, in the Medlana in Turkey, in, in Istanbul, is the fact that it's done collectively, you know, more and more people join and it becomes a collective world. Well, each person is present in and of themselves and yet they, the flow is generated because multi multiples are circulating as it were. And I think this question of how it is one to be in the world, right? So as you said, the question of time is, is, is just a kind of elongated one. Simply, And, you know, a recent work is a clock that has hands that extend way beyond the clock face. 
so you can't really put it, even though it looks like a tablecloth, but you can't actually put it on a table. But what it does, it only has two words on it. One is yester now and one is present tomorrow. So you're constantly moving between yester now and present tomorrow and sort of that idea that it is, it's not an, it's not an arrow. Time is not uh, an arrow. There is no kind of singular direction of meaning, which is what I suppose ideas of progress develop from that whole idea of development in a singular direction. And I think that it is to sort of break some of these categories for ourselves to first, and then of course anyone else who wishes to engage with us is sort of break the binaries of understanding. And most importantly, what is yesterday, today, and tomorrow when we know that we are at all points having to deal with the consequences of all of that at the same time, right? We are simultaneously having to deal with what yesterday is done and what we think tomorrow will do or can do. So these constructions are contingent and therefore all the more interesting to be made more elastic. In relation to time, I also think it's interesting to ask you about being based in Delhi and how, you know, you say on your website, you lay claim to the world from its streets. And so I wonder how time or tempo or temporality or a sense of time might be related to that. Well, I think the fact about Delhi is as a location, as a post-colonial, for example, you can look at the optic which is true, of course, that you are living institutionally and infrastructurally with what being, uh, being post-colonial means now, right? having a certain kind of history. But it also means, I think, the fact that because we have a certain kind of history, a certain kind of imposed history, but where is it not imposed, let's be honest, in complex ways, what it allows us to do is to say, well, since I have, it, I have had it thrust upon me in certain ways, how about if I just turn it around and say, well, it is also mine. It may not have been quote unquote mine to start with, but you know, time has had its twist and now it belongs to me in as much. I mean, I remember when we went to Paris for the first time, going to London for the first time, to be both feeling so separate and connected. But it did seem to us that having a certain kind of um, intellectual history meant that one could take that as a, as a heuristic, as a starting point and not as an ending point. And I think that. So there is a moment of bravura in saying that. Uh, so it is slightly performative as a gesture, but I do believe it strongly that it permits us then to ask questions both of place and time. Um, I find living in Delhi to be locationally very interesting because operate, operationalized questions of where you live and how you live are, shall we say, always in flux here, perhaps more in certain, than in certain other places because it actually demands of you uh, to, to be constantly aware of what it is that you are permitting yourself to be part of, acknowledging that you're part of, and actively participating in. Well, that's maybe a good segue to talk about Yokohama, the Yokohama Triennial of 2020, which I guess against all odds opened in July of this year. And part of that sort of beating the odds is, has to do with the fact that you three as curators were not there. You talk about the strangeness of that 
spatial experience that the three that you and Shuddha and Jibesh were like looking at this flat screen and then giving this outflow of instructions to bodies in space. I think you said the limbs and ears and eyes of others. What was that like? Well, it's definitely uh, an exercise in extreme collective possibility uh, because, as uh, you said, we were actually having to speak through technology, technological framework, to try and find modes of connection and to see things, quote-unquote, on the ground. But I think it's also, I use the word collective, collectivity, I suppose, slightly on point because the fact is that you have to build a trust, right? And that has been part of the process. Uh, that has been part of the long-term process of working on the triennial from the very beginning. What is your order of conversation one has with the team? What are the kind of questions one brings to them and the kind of participation one asks them to bring with it? Do you know what I mean? That trust, uh, that capacity that has been built into the dialogue and the interaction carried through. Uh, we didn't know that we weren't going to be there, but I can, I mean, I can walk the exhibition with my eyes closed right now because of all the various, you know, situations and conversations and, of course, now images that we've all had. I liked, though, how Jibesh talked about it as a learning a new sensorium of between what's two-dimensional or flat like the screen and the three-dimensional space. And he said, mm -hmm. it will take time to understand its difficulty and its beauty and its trouble. And I liked that very much because clearly the way we were all living anyway was unsustainable in, in how we were moving around. So the reliance, the greater reliance that we've actually learned, we've learned how much we can actually do through this distributed network of screens and how much we can collaborate and share with one another. And I think that's very much going to be a much greater part, not just in terms of these kind of viruses, but, but in terms of the climate crisis and overall will be a way of, of operating. So you've got kind of a very immediate preview of that. It's gone to the extent that uh, rats who, who met each other every day when in Delhi for a few hours a day literally have not sat together for six months. So it's a whole other order of experience for us. We have not been a collective in the way that we've been a collective for 25 years. So it, it, it has gone really <laughs> much further than... More, much further than what it means to even do the Yokohama Trinari. I want to talk about uh, the Triennale, about Afterglow. Um, I mean, the Afterglow itself is such a beautiful and evocative concept. You've called it the aura of an explosion. And the afterglow is a, is a lovely word because on the face of it, it promises, well, I don't know. I, I, the first thing you always think of is, at least I do, is the kind of you know, post-event glow, which is like whether it's running or orgasmic or whatever it might be, but the afterglow, the place where, the happy place. But also, as you have said, is, it is the same thing that happens after an explosion. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Cherenkov radiation effect is that you don't even see it right it's the invisible lines that go from an explosion from a nuclear explosion straight into beyond and so your mind sees the light your eyes don't actually see the light so i'm i'm interested in this idea of afterglow but what i really want to talk about is the thicket a thicket being an idea or a, something you can that's sort of immediately 
recognizable. The density and complexity and entanglement, which I know are anyway been themes. I mean, it, it relates certainly to what you were saying also about time. The thickness of it necessitates that we create a space where we really look more closely and decide where to direct our attention and our care. You've also talked about directing care. The idea of the ticket actually is something that has been something which started, it's been a while, right? It, it, I, and what is interesting, I think, about ideas is that it's never like a kind of lightning, you know, everyone wants the eureka moment, but the, for the eureka to happen, you have to have a certain practice. You have to put, you know, you have to engage with certain things before you can have that moment of clarity. And I think that um, thinking on the ticket attained a kind of materialized clarity a few years ago when we did actually make physicalized ticket and we invited people to draw in space with paper tape actually. But it became a space that literally in a day or two, because a number of people just kept coming in and going out and, and, and making with it. You literally at the end of the day were with, with the thing that you didn't know how to navigate the space. And so it became this interesting question also of, do you wish to be frozen in this moment? How do you wish to engage with the ticket? And then what, what does it say about, you know, all the, all, everything else, really. And so this has now become, I would say, a certain kind of uh, meta concept for us that it permits us to acknowledge that it's, that, you know, that uh, the milieu that we are constructing and are constructed by, you know, it is a thicket. So invisible, uh, but a thicket. Also, I remember we did a work some years ago when we invited a programmer, a coder from, actually from the Cybermola Ensemble who uh, spent an afternoon with us and our computers just mapping when our computers were talking to each other, which is, you know, just the three of us sitting. And of course, uh, as anyone who knows any, anything about the world now knows that each time the computers talk to each other, they are also talking to the world because every ping for every event on a computer requires, you know, which is going out, whether it's a search or an email or a... Uh, and obviously going to a simple website even, you are pinging literally across the world uh, and you're connecting simultaneously. There's a wonderful concept in Buddhist philosophy that we've talked about before, which apparently Tim Berners-Lee also had a go with, uh, which is the idea of the Indrajal, that everything is reflected in every moment, right? That there is no such thing as separation because everything reflects everything. And I think that was one of the earliest connections and thinking aloud on connectivity. but to just come back to that afternoon, the picture literally of that conversations when he coded it to represent it, just looked like a ticket. It literally took all these pings and made lines and what you had was a crisscross of such a complexity that even to think that you could trace a line that was quote unquote yours was impossible. And I think this has been thought through in many ways in different fields uh, as, a, as different sets of questions. Um, but for us, I think the thicket is a very good materializing, viscerally materializing concept. You feel the thicket when I say the word thicket. Is the thicket different than the infrastructure that you say that Afterglow offers? Or is it the same? You talk about Afterglow as this infrastructure of relationships and precepts and ethics and well, the reason we use the word infrastructure, I think, is to sort of uh, try and understand practices that are not about singularities, right? 
infrastructure was just a, a way to say that how one imagines when I'm doing an exhibition like a triennial, if I am taking into account the 1,000 days between one triennial and another, I'm already looking at it differently infrastructurally and not looking at it as a three-month exhibition. I'm looking at it as, as 1,000 days. It changes everything. It asks us to think about what is constitu constituted of art practice in that time just for this moment. Just let's look at that. I mean, of course, there's a before and after the 1,000 days, but just as a starting point. So that is what it was. When we did Shanghai Biennial, we actually created something called the Theory Opera, where there could be a performance of thought on, uh, and it didn't happen only at the end of the, or like on allocated few days. It happened often, it happened in multiple ways. And actually we created spaces even within the exhibition where iterations of Theory Opera could be performed. And what is Theory Opera was left open. And it became a really exciting sort of range that included an actual opera on how to understand the Chinese arts scene and art market that lasted 45 minutes to a conversation between, like a performed conversation between Bergson and Einstein, which was written by Jimena Canales from her book. Um, and all the way to all sort of discount, you know, conversations about the, uh, like moon cycles and deep space around Mario Lyon Dijkman's work and so on and so forth. So, in that context, it literally was about creating physical space that could be operated in to the idea of the exhibition and yet have its own kind of presence when it wished to or when things were constructed in that way. So I was pushing more, I think, in that sense of infrastructure, of, create, of creating moments within moments that permit other foregroundings to take place. Yeah. Well, and you do that with the source book for the triennial, you created this source book, a book of sources, texts that are sourced from different traditions, different times, different cultural perspectives and, and geographical locations. And that was that's sort of intending to, as I understand, to emphasize this relational field in a way that you're describing a network of things that work together, whether visibly or invisibly. The idea of sources is to acknowledge the fact that life is not a set of resources. We don't take things and sort of, you know, digest them to regurgitate something or to regurgitate something, something else, right? Um, they come to us, they go through us, and then they, they create rhizomatic potential possibilities. That's one thing. The other thing was also like we had begun this conversation saying, what does one lay claim to the past and the present and the future here and there, but also who? Right? What, where do you come from, literally, even in the same social structures that you might be part of? So it became important to us to create a set of starting points, which we would share with every artist who came onto the exhibition in any, you know, and also... Uh, so the, the sources people. were not only shared with the public after the fact as the source book, but they were actually given to the artists who'd been invited to the exhibition. Exactly. Yeah, so fantastic. what we said was we're going to make, make our starting points, uh, render them to you. Uh, there is not a theme of the exhibition because an exhibition is not, a, is not an illustration of a set of ideas. It makes a new set of ideas. It is a philosophically operating and operative system. Uh, what, when experiences an exhibition, you literally have to come out of it changed because it offers something. It is, an, it is a praxis experience. Uh, even though it might often be rendered as a passive one, but it's not. 
And so we made this set of sources where we had, you know, a doc, a conversation with a doc worker from Yokohama, which was in a dialogue that happened in the 80s and in the 90s. And he was a, a complete autodidact who read history and philosophy when he wasn't picking up a daily wage, but also drinking himself now on some other days. Then we also had Sertlana Boehm's uh, beautiful text on the luminosity of friendship. It's an ex extraordinary text on friendship. And then you also had, so the question of care, the question of toxicity, we had no idea that, you know, the, the virus would make toxicity quite literalized in ways that we did not expect. But the questions of, uh, of, of toxicity and how to live with it are present. When we talked briefly in preparation for this conversation, you told me about your project at the VNA, the Victorian Albert Museum in London, where Brooks selected a relic from their collection, which is a piece called Tipu's Tiger. And you said that the project for you was really about machine intelligence. And in particular, you raised the question about how we pass on these questions of conscience. The question actually that had been posed to the artists was um, what would you look at, what would Europe look like from the future? What really became interesting for us was the question of if one thinks about the future, one thinks about a certain kind of uh, relationship with the machine, but actually we already are living with the machine. Um, the machine is already a part of our lives in, in a profound, invisible but profound ways. The algorithm, which now almost sounds like another kind of character, Mr. Algorithm, but the fact is that the algorithm or the sort of the attitude of the algorithm that or algorithmic attitude is uh, is is a nuance of of our daily uh, actions. So it became um, anyway when we started, we said okay, the only thing that was going to be found in the future from the from the present moment from the island of England was going to be this relic, this automaton actually, which was made by which was commissioned by Tipu Sultan Tipu from what is now present southern India. And he died fighting the British. But the automaton uh, is a large tiger that uh, is devouring a British soldier. And when you wind it up, it makes this kind of growling music noise, uh, which you can't really wind up, but it's available to see on the VNA website now. And it was very interesting for us, the idea of the automaton and the relationship with the machine, um, early instance of um, this, of course, one can look at and see as a kind of, first, you know, act activation of desire, right? You pass on to the machine that which you see, which, which you wish fulfilled, which is the devouring of the British soldier. But to us, it also becomes like a, a mnemonic for thinking about what is our relationship with the machine and what we ask it to do for us, in which we can claim not to have agency. We have it, obviously, we code it, we make it. And yet, it is the machine that enacts it for us. So, for you know, whether it's the drone, whether it's the you know the the data gathering uh, information bunching system, that whatever it might be, it's not people allegedly, because I think it is this concept of othering, this concept of being able to separate yourself from yourself or from your own agency, and sort of give it the place of another and so much, this is such a sort of a philosophically mind area, how does one think of the other? 
and how does one operate in relationship to that but especially when it is not human right this is something which we're dealing with around us all the time right now and there enough of us asking the question of non-human intelligence but also what is machinic intelligence and how do we other that and what is it that we give as agency to that which we claim not to have responsibility for and a lot of it is death you know they do our bad stuff for us in in so in so many ways and i think it is this capacity to uh, separate is what 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 we're interested in like how one separates and then what does that lead to this cleaving is at the heart of it you were talking about that concept of the machines having such a presence in our life in terms of what what in the past were these kind of core presences non-human presences which might be spirits or things that are passed down through stories or things that tell us you know tell us explicitly tell us or indicate to us the right way to do things or something outside yourself that gives you permission or not you know recently i was in the mountains that's the one trip i did manage to make for a, for a week um uh, but what was really interesting is so if you go up to 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 a certain part of india drive up then uh, it used to be quite heavily forested and now of course there's national reserve forest and so on so i i stumbled upon a temple which was not actually a temple in the in the modern sense in the sense that it didn't have any kind of deity per se it was actually much more a place for doing fire yagnas it seemed like it was a little bit out of time it hadn't been modernized and if you look at contemporary temples especially in the in the light of um the way things are happening in contemporary india there has been a kind of you know an excessive performance of hinduification and uh and a modern hindu sensibility but what is interesting is that talking to people we realize that the spirits of that area and especially of that if we can call it temple much more friendly kind of spirit you could you know it wasn't godly it was a spirit but you could what was interesting was that you know so people could drink in that area or smoke it didn't matter but it, what it was interesting was that the spirit was not a nice figure if you went and messed with the forest the spirit would would do bad things to you so it also had a, it was a way of uh, creating permission zones of permission using the other or using the idea of the other the concept of the other was was but what has happened in the last 50 years or less has been the transformation of or the the sucking up of all these spirits for example into the more, more mainstream hindu pantheon which means suddenly that um they are it's like shiva and parvati and because they are now played out as a nuclear family figure they are more are like a parent so why would they they won't bother if we go and do naughty things like take what we want from the forest so it's a complete transformation of our the relationship with nature that was in that area this modern version of god this modern other is a very different idea of other than so even the idea of god is not a tenably similar kind of idea that runs across time uh, even shiva has changed over the i don't know hundreds of years or thousands of years he's been an operative deity and of course the other these minor figures have all been dissipated and i was just earlier talking about the fact that we live with co-presence the co-presence of spirits is one of them and now we have to acknowledge that our co-presence at the moment uh, in this in the time of wafting away spirits is is the machine or uh, a certain and i think it is uh, how one looks at things and this would come back to the infrastructural idea i was talking about what one makes operative right even in the machine is is going to change everything if i make shiva operative as a certain kind of 
father figure godhead who is parental, paternal, it's going to be very different from uh, another kind of Shiva godhead. So it, in that sense, it's the same relationship with machines. How one looks at what the machine can do or what it is doing is our core presence. And our, our infrastructural relationship with that will change what it will continue to do or what it will do in the future. One of the things that one of our working group members, Dakin Hart, who's a senior curator at the Noguchi Museum in New York, he said initially when I invited him to be part of this project, he said, wouldn't it be great if we, we should be teaching machines not knowing? We should be teaching them that they can't know anything. We should be teaching them kind of destabilizing behaviors and uncertain behaviors. I just wonder about how we can kind of teach AI also to kind of proactively maybe reward us for wading into uncomfortable territory, you know, for wading into the slowness, you know, for, for wading into the thicket, let's say. Yeah, actually, it's interesting. We're working on a talk right now, which is going to be for, for the Hangzhou School of Art. Um, and it is exactly about this. It is exactly about the question of is knowing when it knows that it does not know. Like that's, you know, it is an awareness of its own limitedness that it becomes true knowing and then other things become possible. Yeah, it's an, I think it's an interesting sort of question of what is it? I mean, the ignorant schoolmaster is a kind of another tangent to the same question in, in the way that if you acknowledge that this is a, a learning exercise for both of you, there is something that will emerge. Otherwise, it's going to be a repetition of the same. Uh, it's going to be a repetition. There's, there's going to be no difference. And so what is the question of knowledge itself, right, becomes an interesting one. I mean, is, is repetition knowledge? Um, it can be, but always it can be. And I'm not talking at all about uh, how things become embodied and embodied knowledge and histories of ritual and repetition. I'm not discussing it in that way, but I mean in terms of structures of power. What do you think in that sense? What should be the sources for AI? What would be some of the sources <laughs> that you would feed to artificial intelligence? Well, I think Indian Schoolmaster would be a yeah. seriously use, useful text uh, to start with. Um, and I think that it is, um, it is really about how to create op like openings out. How do you acknowledge the fact that you don't know and then build on that? Sometimes I think, you know, when sometimes you read the odd news that turns up, like Facebook has two machines or moments which talk to each other to, in their own language and then shut down. Or like the, the, the robot uh, groundskeeper in a mall in, in, in North America that decides to go and upend itself in a, in a, in a fountain. Is it suicide? Is it a kind of malfunction? Or is it just a fact that, you know, when you, um, when you permit things to have their own capacity, Agency. maybe they will surprise yeah. you, yeah. But I think it, it would be really interesting if, as you're saying, if we could ask a machine to, to develop on the idea of not knowing as a starting point to knowledge. Yeah, that is definitely something I want to continue to pursue. Speaking of not knowing and perhaps the unknowable, we were talking earlier about the afterglow, and you explained it as the aura of an event or the aura even of an explosion. 
And given that the moment we're living through right now is rather an explosive one, I wonder what you think the aura or the afterglow might be of this time. The question you pose is a really interesting one. What is going to be the afterglow of our present moment? And I think it's a really important question. I mean, you know, a hundred years ago, millions of people died, not just from the war, but from the Spanish flu. But what is interesting is that we never knew that. Like, we never actually studied that in our history books. Like, it's amazing, right? You studied the Great War one, and then Great War two, and events leading up to the war, and then events leading up to the next war. But what about, you know, the 17, 20 million people who died from the flu? And this is what I think, is that there was a kind of assumption that now the sort of, I would say, the hyper kind of uh, normativization of human capacity, right? That we have conquered everything. The Great War has been conquered. That means X and a certain kind of moral righteousness, but also it means that we've conquered nature, that we don't have to worry about it anymore. I think part of the shock that we are dealing with right now is the fact that how can it be us who have to deal with this? We have resolved this. How can it come back? And I think the fact this is going to be the biggest afterglow is can we not uh, close down the question of asking our location, questions regarding our location on the, on the planet, both as human and as one species amongst many, that we we'll have to cohabit together. We have to cohabit with others. And in that sense, we have to cohabit with toxicity. We are living with the virus. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. I like, though, like as you point out, that this moment of this pandemic has actually not only amplified all kinds of other structural inequalities. And it's also brought these kind of questions to the fore. And it's happening also where we're having these bigger and bigger climate events happening. So, um, and it's giving us the space, maybe like it's that space in the thicket. It's kind of, it's giving many of us anyway, the space to actually reflect more deeply about a number of these issues. And um, like that space in the thicket of where you then decide where to apply your attention and your care. Yeah, I think um, that would be the best afterglow if of this uh, is, is that, is to be attentive. And I think we have spoken elsewhere of the importance of listening, um, of attentive listening. In some ways, we actually quote this wonderful writer from the Sagamon Ensemble who talked about fearless listening. She, she said, fearless speech needs fearless listening. It, you can't just speak. There has, there has to be a listener. Uh, how one listens, what one listens to uh, is, is really important. Well, I want to thank you for, for your time and your, your own attention and care in coming to this conversation. Well, I want to thank you, Caroline. I mean, I love the idea of, of slow research, of permitting things to take the time that they do and the necessity of that and the relationship with time that is not in one direction only. So uh, thank you for, for asking me to be part of this conversation. This has been AI Murmurings. Brought to you by the Australian Institute for Machine Learning, the Sia Furler Institute, and Slow Research Lab. The music you've been hearing is from The Resonance Canons.
composed and performed by Christopher Tigner from his album, A Light Below, released in 2019 on Western Vinyl. To learn more, listen, and purchase Christopher Tigner's music, please go to wiresundertension.com. You can follow the Art Intelligence Project at artintelligence.ai. To receive updates on this podcast, subscribe on your favorite podcasting app or follow Instagram and Twitter. It's at AI underscore murmurings. I'd like to thank Anton Van Inhengel, Director of the Australian Institute for Machine Learning, Tom Haidu, Director of the Sia Furler Institute, and Sebastian Tomczyk from the University of Adelaide. I'm Carolyn Strauss, Director of Slow Research Lab. Music